The paradoxical kingdom. Uh, I'm going to just go straight in today, and uh, I want to pray first. So if you would pray with me, that would be awesome. Lord Jesus, I wish you would take my paltry efforts at understanding your word and trying to communicate the truths that I see and transform them into something substantial that plants seeds that bear fruit now and into the world to come, because it's your word, Lord, and I'm just the messenger. Bless your word to our hearts and our lives. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. All right. Back when I was doing a little bit of speaking, I always uh, had to come up with some kind of a bio for the brochure, and not having a ton of degrees to compete with the other people who were speaking, I decided to go for humor. And my bio went something like this. Mike Sayers is way too tall for a Greek. But that's because of his Cretan descent. And you know what the Bible says about Cretans in Titus 1.12, which, of course, most people don't. But let me read it to you. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Titus, about the Cretans, because Titus is on Crete trying to start churches. <laughs> he says, Titus, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. It's true. Epimedes, Epimenides, or something like that, a, a, a Cretan poet had said these very words, that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then the question comes to your mind, well, if a Cretan said it, can you believe it? <laughs> See, that would be a paradox. That would be a paradox. Because if he's lying, then Cretans are always truth-tellers. They're always wonderful people. And they're hard workers. But then, of course, Paul has to add this verse, verse 13. This testimony is true, meaning, yeah, they are all those things. So... My only defense is, is that the worst sinners become the best saints, right? That's my only hope right there. But a paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that may nonetheless be true. For example, the paradox that standing is more tiring than walking. Because it would seem that walking would be more tiring than standing because you're actually moving and expending more energy. But if you've ever stood for a long time, like at a wedding or something, in the wedding party, you know that, man, this is really tiring. And you see people keel over, you know, because they lock their knees. The kingdom of God is a paradox. The Bible pictures God as ruling in heaven. Everything and Everybody is under his rule, according to what the Scripture says. But 
Here on earth, it seems like a different story. Here on earth, it's humans that rule and reign over their own lives. Individually, we make decisions every day about what we want to do or what we don't want to do, whether God's in the equation or whether he's not in the equation. And then there's governments like the U.S. government or the Canadian government that seem to make decisions based on whatever they want to do. And then there's the United Nations, which is a whole other level of government, which seems to be totally different than the kingdom of God. We have labor parties, we have business organizations. And so, how is it that God rules and yet we don't see his will being done? Jesus said that his entry into the world was the beginning of the reign of God, the beginning of the kingdom of God. And so, now on earth, if we're to take Jesus' words literally, which I do, it means that somehow there are two kingdoms operating around us. One kingdom which operates with God as the rule maker and one kingdom which operates with men and women as the rulers. Sometimes uh, the kingdom of God seems a bit foreign, so think about it more as the reign of God or uh, the government of God. And here's some of the paradoxes. The kingdom of God that I cannot see is more real than the kingdoms of men and women that we do see. That's a paradox. The kingdom of God, which allows for the persecution and murder of God's people for centuries, is more powerful than all the armies and all the ages of the world which have demolished all their enemies. That seems paradoxical to me. How about this? The kingdom of God, made up of the poor of the earth, is richer than the sum total of all the treasuries of every country in the history of the earth. And here's another one. That the kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future expectation. It's the already but not yet kingdom. That in some mysterious, paradoxical way, God's kingdom is here among us, and yet it's not going to see its fulfillment until when Jesus comes back. Through faith, we are immediately entered into citizenship in the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 says this, For he, Jesus, rescued us, past tense, from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So through faith in Christ, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a present reality for us, but while the kingdom of God is a present reality for us, we await its full realization 
sometime after most of us die. In the future, when Christ returns. And so it's with this tension of what it means to be a Christian that I want to look at the first of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God in the book of Mark. And so we're going to go straight in here to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Read up there along with me. He, Jesus, said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is Jesus talking about? Because we don't have it recorded anywhere in the Gospel of Mark what this thing means. It says later on he would go back and tell his disciples what he meant, but... Mark didn't give us that. So we're left to wonder and ponder, what was Jesus talking about? Hold on, hang on, hold on, hold on. This is not a dialogue, okay? (laughs) Okay. We can talk later, though. I would love to talk later. The thing hidden and concealed in this statement is the entrance of God's kingdom into the world. It had been kept under wraps. It was present in the Hebrew Scriptures. If you had read them, you would know that was going to happen, but most of the world had not read them. And so this fantastic event, that God was going to begin a kingdom, has been concealed, and now it's going to be exposed. Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the light. You don't take the Lord Jesus and conceal him. You actually put him on display for all to see, which is what God is beginning to do. Once again, I think it's really important to look at this whole spiritual landscape like a war zone. The earth has been taken over by the enemy, by Satan. And Jesus has established a beachhead in Israel and is beginning to take back the prisoners of war and the territory that had been stolen from God. And this plan, which had been concealed and hidden, is now being exposed. Jesus is the light. He's the lamp. And what was hidden is actually meant to be disclosed. And Jesus says, if anybody has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, listen closely. It's not just about natural, physical ears. It's about spiritual ears. Let's go on. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. In the Greek it says, look at what you're hearing. It's this combination of senses. Consider, examine, look, study what you're hearing. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. This is difficult, is it not? Let's look at this a little closer. Jesus is saying that the level by which we pay attention to Jesus is the level to which we will receive the benefits of Jesus and his kingdom. Let me repeat that. The deeper we go into our Savior, the more we'll get out of him. That if you pay attention, if you look at what he's telling you, then you'll receive the benefits and even more benefits. And here's the big but. Whoever has will be given more. The more you appropriate what Jesus is saying into your life and into your heart, you'll be given more and deeper and bigger insights into everything. But if you don't consider carefully what you're hearing, then even the little bit of knowledge you have will be taken away from you. Jesus is not fooling around. Either you're serious about me or you're not. This kind of theme is repeated over again in other parables, parables about talents and cities and things like that, where we have this strange idea that people who are actually doing God's will, even a little bit, will be given more to understand, more to do, more to experience, more to rejoice in, And those who aren't doing anything with a little bit they've been given, that'll be taken away. Now, if you're like me, this is troubling. Because it is about us working our tails off, or our eyes off at least, looking at what Jesus is saying. There's human effort involved here. We've got to walk out the kinds of things that Jesus is telling us. And if we don't start walking out the kinds of things Jesus is telling us, then guess what? We're going to lose the things that he's telling us. It's like if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And if you're like me, that's difficult. Because I don't like to work hard. I'd rather have Jesus just give it to me on a silver platter. A kingdom platter, actually. But we're not done. Let's go on. The parable of the growing seed. 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Okay. Pay attention. Listen. Examine closely what I'm about to tell you so you can understand this. And if you understand what I'm about to tell you, then I'll give you more understanding down the road. And if you don't listen to what I'm about to tell you, then you'll have less understanding down the road. It's not a static thing. 
This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, the main idea in this little story seems to be not working. It seems to be that you can go to sleep, wake up, do your thing day after day, and somehow... The things that God has begun in the world and in you will begin to sprout and take form and produce a crop. That's what it seems. It's kind of like Galatians 5.5. One of my personal favorite verses in the Bible. Galatians 5.5 says this. Paul is talking about the same concept. He says, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Okay, everybody here, I hope, wants to be righteous. We want to please God. We want to do the right thing, right? We struggle with doing the right thing, but we want to, right? That's part of our problem, the whole Romans 7 deal. The things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. And so we long for this righteousness, in our Christian lives. And here in Galatians 5.5 5 it says this. So, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. What is the action word in that sentence? Wait. Hope. Do those seem like a lot of work to you? They don't seem like a lot of work to me. Could we be involved in some kind of kingdom paradox between what Jesus said just now and what he said right before that? I gotta work, I gotta work, I gotta work, and I gotta wait. And I gotta wait. And wait. Then I'm gonna work, and I'm gonna wait. Okay, Jesus, which one is it? He's gonna go, it's both. It's a paradox. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Don't try and put me in a corner. And then he ends with the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 30. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus Christ, born into a blue-collar family, his dad was a carpenter, lived in utter obscurity for 30 years. Nobody knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. 
And then for three years, from about age 30 to about age 33, he starts a ministry. That's it. 36 months, he's done. Not one Roman historian ever mentions Jesus of Nazareth. Jewish historian does, Josephus. But as far as the powers that be were concerned, Jesus didn't exist. Small, tiny, insignificant, almost mustard seed in his weight compared to the big Roman Empire. And look what is going on. 2,000 years later, a third of the earth's population claims Christ as its Savior. And the church isn't done. What started out as this tiny little insignificant thing is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, and it's still growing even now. And let me tell you, if you think you've got the kingdom of God figured out and it's arrived, then you're wrong. Because according to this parable, it's going to get huge. A mustard seed was like, you know, dinky. I mean, you've got to use a magnifying glass to see it very well at all. And then it grows into this bush that's like, you know, can be as big as 10 feet. Wait a minute, Mike. Why would Jesus use a mustard seed? Why didn't he use like a sequoia seed? That'd be cool because they can be like 30 feet in diameter and 300 feet tall. I think Jesus chose the mustard seed. Because he wanted us to know that for most of the world, it's going to look like just a big bush. Not very impressive. Not very impressive at all. Of course, until he comes back. All right. Now... There's a million places I could go. There's three or four parables here, depending on how you want to count them, and I don't have time. So I'm going to stick with this paradox for today. This whole idea of working and then resting. I think that kind of bothers a lot of us. As Christians, we're trying to figure out how hard do I have to try to be a good Christian, Mike? And how long do I have to wait to be a good Christian, Mike? Because it seems like Jesus is telling me to do both. If I had to pick a metaphor for my own spiritual life, predominantly right now, I would say, uh, I would use the metaphor of a stick on a stream. Ever go up to the mountains, the foothills during springtime, the snow's melting, and the streams are filled with super cold snow melt rushing down 
the sides of the, of the hills, even coming down the sides of I-70. And if you ever see a stick that's been thrown into the stream, it is zipping down the stream, being carried along. It's not doing anything, and that's not doing any navigating. It's not doing any paddling. But somehow, the stream is carrying that stick along. It goes under, down trees. It goes around boulders. And it just keeps going, making itself way down the stream. I felt like that sometimes in the spirit. Like, God is just carrying me along. When it came to coming to Colorado and, you know, meeting a group of folks who became Five Iron Frenzy and then, uh, you know, having a Bible study that became a church and the church grows to become scum of the earth and a couple different church plants and a morning church. And I'm thinking, I haven't done anything, okay? It's been like being carried. It's kind of like that poem, Footprints in the Sand by Mary Stevenson. Let me read it for you because I know you all have never heard it. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints, but other times it was only one. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish or sorrow or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there's only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you the most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, The years when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, is when I carried you. I remember when I was a kid, we go visit relatives. And we'd come home late at night. And I was little, and I'd be asleep in the back seat or something. And my dad would come, and he would pick me up. He would carry me to my bedroom, put me in my bed, tuck me in. Some of the best memories I have. But then I remember as I got older, like Mark came along two years after I was born, and then five years after I was born, the twins came. So there's four of us in the car, and I'm five. And we come back home from Grandma's house, and I'd be pretending to sleep in the second seat because I'm going, I'm going to get carried to my room. This is going to be awesome. But my dad would kind of tap me on the shoulder and go, Michael, Michael, wake up, wake up. Walk to your room. Come on, let's go. And into my little child mind, I'm going, crap. <laughs> and I had to walk into the house like an adult. I didn't like that feeling near as much as being carried. It could have been worse, I guess. They could have asked me to carry one of the twins. <laughs> that would have been dangerous. <laughs> but there's a point at which this whole idea of resting having God carry you, kind of breaks down, right? 
And you have to use the metaphor of the child now old enough to walk on his or her own has to take over. Now this kind of faith experience is characterized in a different poem, this one called Butt Prints in the Sand. <laughs> one night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not along the shore. And then some stranger prints appeared. And I asked the Lord, what have we here? These prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. <laughs> My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and you made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired and fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. <laughs> because in life there comes a time when one must fight, and one must climb, and one must rise and take a stand, or leave some butt prints in the sand. <laughs> right. Now, I just read you a portion from my book, Pure Scum. And I am sure when people read Footprints in the Sand, they're going to be going, what the heck? The pastor of Scum of the Earth is quoting footprints, but see, I'm just setting him up for butt prints. <laughs> but we have this paradox of walking and being carried, of, of working and, and resting Exodus 19.4, the Lord says, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That would be being carried, right? Then Deuteronomy 5.33, Walk in all the ways the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Both Old Testament, both Pentateuch, both in the Bible. Here's another one, Deuteronomy 131. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Psalm 89.15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. Second Peter 121. We're going to go to the New Testament now. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 3, verse 4. New Testament again. Yet, you have a few people who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So which is it, folks? Are we born along by God's Spirit, carried, or do we move on our own? Obviously, the answer is yes. Sometimes we're carried, and yes, sometimes we walk on our own. Yes, sometimes we work, and yes, sometimes we wait. And yes, sometimes it's both. Now, I find this to be true in a lot of people's stories, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to give you a little insight in the mind of a pastor right now. 
when people tell me about their coming to faith experiences, usually it's about a lot of work. I mean, they are, they are running to try and find Jesus. Well, you know, I went to this church, and I couldn't stand that. I went to this place over here in this Bible study, and then I decided I was going to go away and do this mission trip, and then I was going to go over here and do this, and you know, I'm looking for Jesus. I kept looking for Jesus, and then one time I was in this one place, and, like, the power of God came down, and it was great, and God allowed me to find him. You know, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you keep knocking, you know, the door's going to be opened. If you keep asking, it'll be given to you. See, it happened to me. So I hear this kind of story all the time from people, young Christians who have just come to know Christ. They're going, man, it was a lot of work. I was not just walking, I was running to try and find Jesus. And then once they've been believers for a while, and they're looking back on that whole thing, they say stuff like this. You know? I don't think I even would have been looking for Jesus if he hadn't been looking for me first. When I actually think about the kind of stuff that happened to me as a kid, I can see Jesus was there all along, pushing me, guiding me, making sure this person was in my life, making sure I met this other group of folks over here. I mean, I've talked about me trying to find out that God was not real so that I could go and sleep with as many girls as possible and drink as much beer as possible without any kind of repercussions from the divine. You all know that story about me going to Bible studies to find out God wasn't real. Um, that was my seeking part. But what I haven't talked to you about much is the part when I felt like I was carried I mean, I was born into a Greek Orthodox family. Of all the families on the face of the earth that God could have put me in, he puts me into a family that's not just Orthodox, it's very Orthodox. I mean, I went to Sunday school, I went to Greek school, I went to church, I was part of the youth group, I was, I mean, as much as Greeks can do those kinds of things, and it's way different than evangelical Protestantism, so don't try and figure out you know what it is, it's, it's different. I don't know how to put it. I mean, I never heard about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until I was, you know, talking to Baptist kids. <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. Like, God puts me with these Baptist kids. It just so happened some really hot girl paid attention to me, and she was a Christian. And so I was interested in Jesus and her. <laughs> or Jesus and her. And I was attracted to the Jesus in her. <laughs> I like the way Jesus filled out that sweater. And um, so... Can I claim any kind of righteousness for pursuing God at that particular moment? I don't think so. She introduced me to her pastor. 
And some kid who kept harping on me about Jesus. Like this kid was relentless. He would always talk to me about Jesus. And I was always trying to get it away from him. I'm going, what are you? Some kind of a young Billy Graham? Like, leave me, like, I'm just interested in her. But he wanted me to be interested in Jesus. So, you know, I would see him come down the hallway in school, and I would go the opposite direction to class. I'll go three sides of the square of the school to get to class instead of going the most direct route. And they introduced me to his, their youth pastor. Now, what I'm trying to say is this. The kingdom of God is a paradox. Yeah, you work your tail off. And yeah, God does it all for you. I'm trying to harmonize these two ideas. I was thinking about it for a while and talking to some buddies of mine. And my friend Jim Emig likens the paradox to swimming. You cannot swim until you relax enough to let yourself be carried by the water. But you have to move your arms and legs if you want to go forward. There's this strange paradox about swimming. You've got to relax enough to let the water lift you up, buoyancy, and you've got to work enough to move in a direction that you want to go into. Now, when problems confront us, any kind of problems in life, our tendency is to go into extremes. Work, 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 work. Or rest, 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 rest. I'm just going to stay here until Jesus does something. I'm not going to do anything because I might make a wrong move. I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to stay here. Or you're working like crazy trying to make it happen, and you're making it worse. So pastorally, this is what I see happening, that when a problem confronts us in the Christian life, our tendency is to go either, okay, I'm going to be carried or I'm going to, I'm going to run like crazy and one or the other. And I'm going, you know, maybe it's a paradox. Maybe it's both. We either want to fight like crazy to get through the problem or we want to put our hand in the, head in the sand like an ostrich and wait until it goes away. Take a financial crisis, for instance. Say your boss cut your hours at work, or maybe even you got laid off. You could wait for God to do something. I know a believer who was waiting for God to give him winning lottery numbers. Or you could rush right out, talk to all your friends, your parents, your uncles, your aunts, and borrow the money that you need. Get the first job you come across or even steal from your roommates. And I've seen people do all three of those, trying to fix their own problems. Now, neither of those options, from my perspective, waiting or rushing around would be the right one. Learning to swim. 
in that situation. That would be the right thing to do. The person who's on his knees praying may have to get up onto his feet. And the girl who's running around trying to make it happen may have to get on her knees and pray. A lot of you know my story. I felt a call to ministry when I was like 20 years old. And it took about 20 more years for God to get me anywhere close to that. And you know, I felt like I was striving the whole way. I applied to Young Life staff. I did Young Life staff. That fell apart. I worked for a church. That fell apart. I took a job doing anything while I could maybe find some volunteer work to work with kids in a church, and maybe they would promote me in the hierarchy of the church, and, you know, that didn't work. And it seemed like for years and years I was striving, trying to make it work. And finally, when I gave up, Trying, it seemed like things started to fall into place. A lot of backstory I can't go into right now. But let me just say that when I landed here with you guys and Scum of the Earth, I finally feel like it was all worth it. And then I'm going, but I didn't do anything to make this happen. People ask me, how do you start a scum of the earth, Mike? We want to start one in our hometown. I go, well, okay, here's the formula. Um, you got to know you're called to ministry for about 20 years and nothing happens. Like try like crazy and it just falls apart. All right, that's the first thing you got to do. Then, take your wife and your four kids and move 1,200 miles away to go to seminary at 40 years old. This is really crucial. <laughs> Once you do that, then get turned down at the first church you apply to and then have the second church hire you to be their young adult and singles pastor. Tell the senior pastor that you want to work with young singles and have him turn you down, saying, no, work with the older singles, Mike, because that's what we're paying you to do. Do that for a couple years. And when the pastor quits to take another church, start the young adult group. And this is a critical part. Somewhere in the mix, become friends with some young people who are going to become a nationally acclaimed Christian ska band and become that band's pastor. So this is a key point in trying to start a church like Scum of the Earth. So make that happen. And then, after you get fired by the new pastor for not working with the older singles and working too much with the younger singles, have the band 
And their Bible study invites you to help them start a church. And if you want scum of the earth in your place, that's how it's done. Okay, my trek seems a paradox to me. And my guess is that your trek is going to seem like a paradox to you as well. It's going to seem like, like you're walking, running, running, and then being carried. It's going to feel like the water is lifting you up and that you're swimming like crazy. It's going to feel like both. So that's where I'm leaving it. If you're just waiting, that's not good enough. And if you're just working your tail off, that's not good enough either. Somehow you're going to find a balance of both because the kingdom of God is paradoxical like that. That's how Jesus works. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you most for sending Jesus, who to me is the ultimate paradox. The king who is also a slave. The one who died who is also immortal. The judge who shows amazing mercy and grace. Help us to follow in his footsteps, embracing the paradox of the kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen.